I want to spend some time this morning looking at two particular stories in the book of Acts. Two stories that are meant to be considered together. They are intentionally placed together by Luke as he's writing the book of Acts to teach us something, to draw our attention to a particular feature of the New Testament church, a feature that exposes their heart. And in particular, it's their commitment to generosity. Because generosity, and certainly the generosity of the early church, revealed the heart of the early church, not only for the Lord, it certainly reveals that, but also for each other. Now, the first story we're going to look at concerns a pretty central figure in the story of the book of Acts. He's introduced at the end of Acts chapter 4 as Joseph. But we're told the disciples, the apostles, have a nickname for this guy named Joseph. And his nickname is Barnabas. And that means son of encouragement. What, what a nickname to have. I pray that would be true of all of us, that we would desire to be called a son or daughter of encouragement. And if you know anything about Barnabas, he plays a major role later in the book of Acts in Paul's missionary journeys. But the first meaningful action that Luke wants to draw our attention to, the first action of encouragement from this son of encouragement, Barnabas, is found in verses 32 to 37 of Acts chapter 4. And let's, let's read these verses together. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony and to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money, laying it at the apostles' feet. Now, this section of the book of Acts sounds very familiar, closely linked to the section that we looked last week looked at last week in Acts 2, 42 to 47. You may remember that in that passage, the people of God, filled by the Spirit of God, begin to devote themselves to certain practices. They they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They gave uh, themselves to gathering together as a people. They, they proclaimed the gospel together through the partaking of the Lord's Supper, and they prayed together. And the Bible also says that they held everything in common. So there was no one among them who was needy. They were doing all of life together. Now those now, many of those same basic activities are present at the end of Acts 4 as well. But there's one notable addition. One notable thing that Luke wants us to take notice of. Another practice that the early church devoted themselves to. And that is the practice of generosity. One of the ways that the early church devoted themselves to the work of God. And to caring for one another was through generosity. And it's remarkable Remarkable generosity, in fact. People were selling their land and their houses. 
Now, back then, it wasn't common for people to own land or houses, but those who did have these things were selling them, and whatever they got for the the land or the house, they would lay the proceeds, the profit, at the apostles' feet in order for them to care for the needs of the church. And then Luke draws attention, particular attention, to the generous acts of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, from the island of Cyprus, a Jew, who was from the priestly tribe. He was a Levite. And he takes some of the property that he owns and he sells it. Now, we don't know the size of the property. We don't know how much he got for the property. But whatever profit, whatever gain he received, he lays it at the apostles' feet. And this act of generosity is celebrated. It is received as encouragement as the apostles in the early church see Barnabas, this Levite, leading the people of God to worship God. It's wonderful. But immediately after, Luke tells us of this action of Barnabas, immediately after Barnabas is commended for his extraordinary generosity, another story is told. The story of Ananias and Sapphira, and it's offered in contrast to Barnabas to be a a word of warning to the early church and to us today. Let's look at the first 11 verses of Acts chapter five. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds And brought only a part of it, laying it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. And then after an interval of about three hours, his wife, Sapphira, came, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, they found her dead. They carried her out, buried her beside her husband and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Now, initially, and this part, of the book of Acts, the actions of Ananias and Sapphira seem largely the same. They own a piece of land. They sell this property. And the thought is they're going to bring the proceeds to the apostles to use for the the work and service of the church. But there's a wrinkle in their story that reveals something is off in their heart. Something's not right. Calling into question the sincerity of this action is an act of true worship. Because while they do offer some of the money, uh, some of the money to the apostles, they keep back a portion for themselves, but claim to have given everything. They say, hey, 
we're giving everything we've bought, we've gotten for, for this property, we're giving it all to the local church, all to the apostles. They conspire to deceive everyone around them because they are concerned more with appearances than a true heart of gratitude that is leading to generosity. They're concerned more with the favor of man than they are with the favor of God. They wanted people to see this incredible act of generosity and celebrate them. But God does not share worship. And God does not indulge deception. And so God reveals the truth of what's taking place here to Peter who holds them accountable. And how Peter holds them accountable is stunning. It's sobering. He deals with Ananias first who came apparently to give the offering apart from his wife. And after he gives the offering, Peter begins to question him about the offering knowing by God's providence that something is off. And so he says to Ananias, Ananias, I know that what you are claiming is not true. I know you got more money for this land than you've said, and you kept back a portion for yourself. Why? Why did you allow the enemy to lead you to lie about the offering? The property was yours. No one's twisting your arm. No one's forcing you to go sell this property. And even after you sold the property, the money is yours. You could have done anything you wanted to with the money, and yet you claimed to have sold it for the Lord and to, given, had to have given everything for the Lord. He just wants a free will offering, and yet you're lying to him. You've lied to me. You've lied to the Lord. You've lied to the church. And as a result, God's judgment will be upon you, and he drops dead. And then Sapphira comes in about three hours later with no knowledge of what's happened to her husband, and Peter gives her an opportunity to come clean. And so he asks her, Sapphira, did you sell this property for the amount that you were giving to the church today? And she says, yes. Her answer is the same as her husband's, and her end is the same as her husband's. Peter condemns her action, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, she falls dead and is buried right next to Ananias. The Bible says that great fear came over the whole church and everyone who heard it, and rightfully so. So why are we talking about this story right in the middle of our Multiply initiative? Well, we're not talking about it to suggest that if you don't give to the local church, you're going to drop dead today, okay? So everybody uh, just take that off of your concern list. We want free will offerings, and God only wants free will offerings. But I do think these stories help us understand the heart of giving, the heart of generosity, the heart that we see on display in the early church, they help us to answer a very important question as the people of God. Why should we give to the work of the Lord through the local church? You see, it's clear, clear that one of the, the effects of the gospel upon the people of God is generosity. And that we should be genuine in our generosity because of our love for the Lord. And it's also true that we should celebrate when those among us act in generous ways. But we 
must also guard our hearts to make sure that we're not giving or seeking the wrong kind of applause or favor. Because as with any act of worship, and again, generosity, giving is an act of worship. Our giving must be a response to who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Generosity must be driven by a conviction, a deep belief about the surpassing worth and worthiness of our God. Because the people of God have always been expected to give to the Lord. The people of God have always been expected to give a portion to the Lord. This goes back even before the law. It's pre-law. This response that we are to give to our God who created us. Cain offered an offering of the firstborn of his flocks in Genesis chapter 4 that brought him favor with God. And so early on, we're taught that we are to give our first and our best to our God who created us. And then in Genesis 14 verse 20, we see the idea of offering move to an offering of a tenth of our goods, a tithe established as an act of gratitude and worship. And then these pre-law acts of worship through giving are codified in the law, wherein the people of God are expected to give a tenth of everything they gain to the temple, to the house of the Lord. Leviticus 27, Numbers 18. And they're even asked to give beyond that when there are people around them who have needs that need to be met. The people of God were expected in the Old Testament, it is clear, to give a portion of their goods first to the Lord and then for the benefit of one another. And while the Lord has always required a portion, sometimes he even asks for more. He asks his people to give in a sacrificial way. I heard a phrase about Christian giving that has affected me, and I hope our family, as we think about and pray how we give to the Lord, and here's the phrase, always a portion sometimes a sacrifice. If you could summarize the teaching of the Bible about giving, the the practice that we should observe as followers of Jesus, here's the phrase, always a portion, sometimes a sacrifice. Always a portion, sometimes a sacrifice. And that latter thing seems to be what's happening here in the book of Acts. What's happening in Acts chapter 4 seems to be kind of supernatural, sacrificial giving. And this is going to be challenging for us because for many of us, we think that normal proportionate giving is a sacrifice. But that's just baseline. That's, That's the minimum expectation for followers of Jesus, for the people of God, as outlined in Scripture. Something more is happening here. We've already noted that the early Christians continued to operate as faithful Jews, believing rightfully that their Christian faith was simply an extension, a further revealing of their Jewish faith. And so they went to the temple. They continued to go to the temple to pray. And in all likelihood, they probably continued to give to the temple as the, the law required. But what is being offered here is more. It's extraordinarily sacrificial what's happening here. And the early church freely and joyfully engaged in this kind of sacrificial giving when the Lord called because of what God had done for them in Jesus. Jesus, 
who freely and sacrificially gave of himself for our salvation. And friends, is there a better way for us to declare the the gospel of Jesus Christ than by being a generous people? Because certainly generosity is at the heart of the gospel. When we did not deserve to be saved, our God, our Father in heaven, looked upon us with incredible compassion and mercy, and he so loved us that he gave. Isn't that what John 3, 16 says? He gave, he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but could have everlasting life. Our father gave, he showed incredible generosity by sending his son. And think about the generosity of the son who lived a perfect sinless life who left the glory of heaven to take on flesh and dwell among us but he gave the whole of himself. He gave his body and his blood up on that cross to receive the full wrath and punishment that we deserved for our sins so that in his death, we could be freed from the bondage and his resurrection, we could be exposed, have the opportunity to step into abundant, eternal life. And if that wasn't enough, he gave again and sent us the Holy Spirit of God to be our helper and guide as we seek to follow Jesus faithfully. Generosity is at the heart of the gospel. And friends, if we are to be the kind of people that God calls us to be, if we are to be a gospel people, certainly we must be a generous people. It's clear that this is the reason why Barnabas was generous. He was motivated, motivated by the gospel. He was motivated by the love that God showed him, a favor that had already been given to him through the Son. And it's not just here that we see this kind of generosity on display in the early church. It is throughout the New Testament. Many of you this morning in your, your Sunday school small group times got to look at one example in the book of Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. And in this passage, Paul is taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And he's challenging the Corinthian church to give for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And he uses the example of the Macedonian church to challenge them and encourage them to grow in generosity. And listen to how he, he writes about the churches of Macedonia. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction." Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Now, let's just think about that combination for a minute, all right? How many of you have ever been in a season of extreme affliction? Do you think it would be described of you in that season of extreme affliction that you had an abundance of joy? Don't those things like seem at odds? They don't often go together, and yet in the Macedonian church, there's something about them that even though they're experiencing incredible affliction, they are filled with joy. And then he says, okay, they're in the affliction, and then there's this weird combination. Their abundance of joy coupled together with what? Extreme poverty, okay, not just normal poverty, extreme poverty has overflowed into what? A wealth of generosity on their part. 
For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, but also beyond their means of their own accord, begging us. Now think about this. Okay. If you know people who are in extreme poverty, what, what typically would you expect them to beg for? Money. And yet, what does Paul say the saints in Macedonia were begging for? Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this was not as expected. Of course it wasn't. It's supernatural. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. See that you excel in this act of grace also. The people of God should be generous, extraordinarily generous, because we serve an extraordinary, extraordinarily generous God. And if we have given ourselves first to the Lord, then there should be nothing in our lives that is off limit for him to use whenever he wills for whatever he wills. Hear me. You cannot buy the favor of God. That's not what's being encouraged here. You certainly can't buy the favor of man. That's fleeting and it will change. Those shouldn't be the reasons why you give to the Lord. But if you've truly been overwhelmed by the gospel of Jesus Christ if you've been a recipient of the greatest act of generosity that we have seen in the history of humankind, the gospel of Jesus Christ and friends, having given ourselves first to the Lord, we should and must be generous. And I hope this challenges us. I hope this challenges us, church family, because Barnabas and the Macedonian church, they were committed to giving before a project or a directive toward their giving was ever given. Their heart was changed. It was transformed to, to love God and to love his work, to love the things that were or are above more than the things that are around us. And that should challenge us. It should call us to, to ask a very important question as a disciple of Jesus. As a part of a New Testament church, are we generous? Are we a financially generous people? Are we giving always a portion as a baseline, as the Bible commands? And are we even willing to give sacrificially if God asks? And I want you to hear me this morning. I'm not asking this question just for the benefit of multiply. Not primarily for the benefit of multiply. I'm asking this question. The Bible's asking this question for the benefit of our hearts. Because this is a clear, a clear marker of someone who is following Christ faithfully. In fact, it may be the most clear declaration of God's place in our lives. How we give generously to the Lord. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your what is also? Your heart. your heart. Listen, your heart follows your money or your money follows your heart. If you were to look at your bank account, if you were to look at your investment portfolio, what is it declaring? 
What is it declaring? Are you generous? Are we generous? The Bible is clear that money comes from the Lord and is for the Lord. That's what we read in that, that prayer of David in 1 Chronicles 29 when he says, God, it's incredible to me that we have the favor, the joy, the privilege of giving to the building of your temple because it all came from you anyway. And we're simply just giving it back to you. Would you receive it? We're unworthy. We don't deserve any of this good. We don't deserve the opportunity to, to help build this building for your name, but you've entrusted to us. We're giving it back to you. Would you honor it? And thank you, God, for the privilege of being a part of it. That's the heart that is clearly described and defined in the, the, the Bible about the people of God. And the calling of generosity is good for us because it reminds us that we are to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on the earth. Because that's where eternal treasure can be found. There's a, a story I was pointed to earlier this week about George Truitt. He's a well-known Texas pastor in the mid-1900s, and he's pastoring in Dallas. And I don't know if you know about this, but Dallas has a lot of money. And so one of these guys who had a lot of money invited Pastor Truett over to his house. And it was one of those properties like you see on Dallas, you know, like one of those big old homes in the middle of a flat field where you can see for miles and miles and miles. And so he had Pastor Truett over and his wife, and they were talking about the, the property and the land. And so he took him up high in the house, like on a balcony where he could see for, for a long while on these flat Texas plains. And here's how uh, the, the story goes. This man, who did not grow up wealthy, says to, to Pastor George, 25 years ago, I had nothing. Now, as far as you can see, it's all mine. Looking south at its sprawling fields of grain, he said, that's all mine too. Turning to the east toward huge herds of cattle, he bragged, they're mine also. Then pointing to the west and beautiful forest, he exclaimed, that's all mine too. And then he paused, waiting for Dr. Truett to compliment him on his great success. But instead, Dr. Truett placed one hand on the man's shoulders and he pointed to heaven and said, how much do you have in that direction? The man hung his head and confessed, you know, I've never really thought about that. Friends, it is good for our hearts to be generous. It is good for our hearts to give first to the Lord because it reminds us where and what truly matters. Now listen, this move toward generosity will be a new act of discipleship for some of us, but one that we must engage in if we're gonna follow the Lord faithfully. And even though I know this is sometimes an uncomfortable topic, it's something that we must talk about because the Bible talks about it. And so we want, as pastors and leadership here, to help lead all of us to give as the Bible commands, both wisely and obediently. And so what I wanna do right now is get very practical and help you think about and pray about as a family how you can walk and grow in generosity. And so if you look on pages 18 and 19 of your Multiply book, there is a path. And if you don't have one, I'm gonna put it on the screen. I do think that there are some books on the edges of the pews still if you wanna use one or borrow one for today. But this will just be a helpful uh, terminology. It'll be a helpful kind of, uh, give us some helpful categories to think about where we are on the spectrum of generosity and how we can pray and think about growing in this act of grace 
as we are commanded to in 2 Corinthians 8 and by the example of Acts 4 and 5. And so I'm going to walk through the categories and I want you to kind of think about and pray about where you would fit in these categories. So first, our giving typically begins as an initial giver. That's the first category we're going to talk about, an initial giver. An initial giver is someone who gives occasionally to the church. You come to church, you hear a great message or a great sermon, you, you get moved by the experience of being with God's people, and because you're there, you take some of what you have and you give it to the Lord. You put it in the offering plate. You, you get your phone out and you give on a link online. But in that moment, you feel moved by the Spirit and you give in response. And that's a wonderful first act of worship, to, to give to the Lord any amount. And so we commend you in that. But then, hopefully, as a person becomes more committed to the local church, and as they attend consistently, they begin to give consistently. And that's the second step in our process, a consistent giver. What that occasional giver gave once in a while, a consistent giver gives more often, maybe once a week or once a month. And even as they become more involved, maybe as they have even more abundance, they start to give a little bit more. And then consistent giving, we hope, turns into intentional giving. And this is perhaps the most significant step in discipleship when it comes to generosity and to kingdom-mindedness in terms of, of, of giving, this intentional giving, where the amount, not just the frequency, but the amount begins to be a primary concern, a primary consideration for this person or for this family as they consider the whole teaching and promise of Scripture. It's where the idea of a tithe can come in handy because a tithe, that 10% is a helpful threshold of giving to begin to work your way to. Yes, the tithe is primarily an Old Testament concept, but the New Testament doesn't decrease the expectation. It enhances the expectation we'll get there. And so one of the things that you can begin thinking about is, hey, listen, it is a clear practice and expectation of God's people that we give a proportion, 10% is a biblical proportion. So maybe we should begin thinking about how we can move and start working toward a tenth of everything that we gain being given back to the Lord through the church to the work of God. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time here because I do want to promote and declare over you a teaching that we wholeheartedly hold to and believe here at Bayleaf Baptist Church, that we are called to give first to the church. We're called to give first to the church. So when you think about proportionate giving, we give first to the church, then to other things as we feel led to by the Lord. And let me just give you some biblical reasons why we affirm and believe that we give first to the local church. The first is this. The local church is the primary place where we receive the ministry of the word. This is the primary place where we hear God's, God's word proclaimed over us in the preaching moment where we get to gather with God's people and sing God's word together, pray God's word together. It's where we meet together in smaller groups out here in our, our buildings to have Sunday school and to, to dive deeper in community around the word of God. And the Bible calls us to, fin to, to financially support those who labor in the work of the ministry of the word, 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5. And then beyond that, it, it calls us to, to help care and upkeep 
those buildings and properties that are dedicated to the work of the Lord. Don't we have incredible buildings here at Bayleaf? Aren't you grateful for this room that we're sitting in right now? It's, it's beautiful and it's, it's air conditioned. Isn't that nice? And isn't it awesome that we have lights on that you can see and you can see one another? Do you know those things don't just happen? That we gotta pay bills. We gotta pay the light bill. We gotta pay for electricity and we gotta pay for air conditioning systems. And I just gotta tell you guys, they fail an awful lot. Do you have this experience at your home? It, it's great to have these rooms. It's great to have these wonderful spaces for our preschool and our kids and our students. But in order to have these things and keep them in a way that are usable, we need to give to the work of the local church because it's our responsibility to keep up the things that God has entrusted to us. And hear me, this is a, it's a phrase we need to think about often as a church. Our, commi- our ability to be faithful to the mission of God will always be directly proportional to our generosity as the people of God. Our ability to be faithful to the mission of God will always be directly proportional to our generosity as the people of God. So, We wanna give to the local church because the ministry of the word takes place here. Secondly, we wanna give to the the local church because the Lord himself is invested in the local church. Jesus told us in Matthew 16, 18, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If Jesus is invested in the local church, shouldn't we be invested in the local church as well? And here's why. Number three, Jesus is invested in the local church because it is through the local church that the gospel advances. It is through the local church that the gospel advances. Can can I read for you a passage that's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture in the book of Ephesians chapter three? Because it just, it always calls me to marvel at what we are a part of as God's people. So listen to this. Pages are sticking together. Sorry, this must be a, uh, a passage I wrote in a, read on a donut Sunday. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Here's what Paul writes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna begin in verse seven of Ephesians three. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, listen to this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. What was revealed, the mystery hidden, might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities and the heavenly places. Isn't that incredible work? that we've been called to as the people of God and we are the only institution on the face of the planet through which the gospel goes forth. Listen, there are a lot of nonprofits that do a lot of great things. There are a lot of universities and private schools that do a lot of great things. But hear me today, the church has been entrusted with the gospel. The church is expected to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it is the church that will be victorious in Christ because the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And then finally, the fourth reason I'm gonna mention here, there are more, 
that we should give to the local church first is because there is collective wisdom in the local church. Isn't it interesting in Acts 4 that when everybody sells their belongings, when everybody sells the land or the house, what do they do in verse 35? They lay it at the apostles' feet. And then it was distributed to each as any had need. There's collective wisdom in the local church. Our resources used together under the direction of the Holy Spirit can have a greater impact. We can do more together than we could ever do on our own. And then beyond that, we're entrusting the church and the leadership of the church to speak about where we should allocate our resources so that they can have the greatest gospel impact as God moves and works among us. These core convictions and more under the guidance of the Holy Scripture should lead us to be intentional givers. But that's not the end, okay? I said that earlier. The tithe is not the end of giving in the New Testament. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that whatever material gain we have in this life, we are to consistently place before the Lord. And this is what helps us move to what we call a surrendered giver. Now, the key difference here and the the key spiritual movement here from an intentional giver to a surrendered giver is that giving is what shapes the rest of their spending. The goal is not simply to get to 10%, although that is a wonderful goal to pursue, and I commend you to do that. There's a greater goal here. Their goal is to give away as much as is possible for the sake of the kingdom without themselves becoming a burden to the church. Here's a mantra that they could live under. We give to the Lord, we save for the future, and then we spend to meet the needs of the day. But giving is first. Giving generously is first in their mind. I I read an article earlier this week about John Stott, who's a a wonderful pastor, a wonderful scholar, and People were giving witness in this article to the simplicity with which which John Stott led. And many of the people who worked with him, who followed him, who were discipled by him, would say that he lived with simplicity on purpose. He lived in simplicity on purpose. He had his basic needs met for his family, and then whatever else he had, whatever excess he had, he would give away because he wanted to live a surrendered giving kind of life. And then the final step on this journey is becoming a kingdom giver. This is someone who's always thinking and strategizing about how to have a long-term impact for the gospel. They're giving actively now, but they're trying to position themselves and their finances in a way that they can have an impact beyond their lifetime. When I was at Champion Forest in Houston, I got to meet this wonderful couple who came to me when I was kind of overseeing the, the missions department there because they had a, a conviction that the Lord was leading them to overseas mission. And they told me a really cool story. They said how in their 20s, and they were probably in their mid to late 50s when we're having this conversation some years ago. In their mid to late 20s, the Lord placed a burden on their heart that they should save for retirement in such a way they could play, they could, They could pay not only for their own needs, 
but they could also support a, a missionary with the IMB or some other organization. So in their 20s, they began saving, putting back in retirement, not only the money they needed, but also for a, a missionary to support mission endeavors overseas. Well, it turns out 30 years later, they felt a call from the Lord to go overseas on mission. And they said, we never expected this, but we feel it now. And we also feel like all those funds that we began saving 30 years ago are what the Lord is gonna use to send us and sustain us overseas now so that the church can give their money and their mission to other activities in missions. Isn't that incredible? 30 years ago, they said, we need to save, we need to think about more than ourselves and the mission of God. And then 30 years later, the Lord redeemed that seed of faith to enable this couple to move to Portugal and tell the Portuguese people in Lisbon about the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but I wasn't thinking about that in my 20s. I don't think I had many good things I was thinking about in my 20s, but I certainly wasn't thinking that way. And yet they did, and the Lord redeemed that. Are we thinking as kingdom givers? Now hear me, for us to live with this kind of generosity will require a significant change in our thinking. We need a biblical worldview to help us think about the resources that God has entrusted to us and the way that we look at the world because we live in a culture that says this. It encourages material wealth. There's a phrase that I heard earlier this week that I think could summarize the way our culture looks at money today. Save what you can, can what you save, and then sit on the can. Because that's where we find our security. But here's what... Here's what John, said, John Stott said about materialism. He wrote this in The Radical Disciple, and then he lived it out in his own life. Materialism, a preoccupation with material things, can smother your spiritual life. Jesus told us not to store up treasure on earth and warned us against covetousness. So did the Apostle Paul, urging us instead to develop a lifestyle of simplicity, generosity, contentment, drawing on his own experience of having learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Would we be willing to ask God to give us that kind of perspective when it comes to our finances and resources so that he can use the excess of what we have to accomplish his gospel purposes through Bayleaf Baptist Church around the world? Now listen, I wanna make sure that I'm, I'm clear here. No one is asking you to not give wisely. We want you to give obediently, but also wisely. We understand the obligations both to care for our family and to pay debts that we have. But I do want us to be challenged because the Bible also calls us to give first to the Lord, our first and our best, always a portion, sometimes sacrificially and the Bible calls us to do so cheerfully and joyfully. Cheerfully and joyfully. These are free will offerings that we are to offer to the Lord because of what he has done for us in Christ. And we believe, church, that if all of us, if all of us would give, every member of our church would give as the Lord directs, all of us giving a portion, some of us for a season giving sacrificially, 
that our collective generosity would give us everything we need to not only fuel the vision that we have for Creedmoor Road, but the vision we have to make disciples locally and globally for the glory of God that far moves beyond the Creedmoor Road property. Because hear me, the end of the ministry of this church is not just to build a building on Creedmoor Road. No, we wanna make disciples locally and globally for the glory of God. We wanna see people in the, the area around Creedmoor Road and the people around our church right here hear the gospel, know the gospel, and respond. And we want to collectively work together, all of these disciples working together to make much of Jesus, not in Raleigh, but to the ends of the earth. And if we wanna be faithful to what God has called us to, then we must be generous. Because our ability to do the work that God has called us to will always be affected by our generosity as a people. The more generous we are, the more we can do for the sake of the gospel. That's the way God designed it because he wants our hearts to be surrendered to him. And friends, what greater evidence of a heart surrendered to Jesus than a pocketbook surrendered to Jesus? Now remember, this kind of generosity is a fruit of receiving the generosity of God toward us in Christ. You can't give in this way. You can't give in a way that honors the Lord cheerfully and joyfully if you've not first given yourself to the Lord in Jesus. And so let me just ask you this morning, have you ever repented of your sins and believed in Christ Jesus to receive the greatest gift that has ever been given to man? If not, that is the proper response this morning. Give yourself first to the Lord. Repent and believe in him unto salvation. We'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to talk with you more about following Jesus. How, how gracious and merciful and good our God has been to send his son. And how generous Jesus acted on our behalf, taking our place upon the cross to give us eternal abundant life. Oh, that you would respond today. And then for those of us who have received this generous act of Jesus, are we exhibiting this fruit of the gospel? Generosity. If not, why not? If not, why not? And I want us to spend a few moments in prayer, doing kind of an exercise in prayer to help us navigate that question. Maybe some of you, some of you are walking faithfully in generosity, and I just want to commend you. Thank you. Thank you for setting the the stage and being an example to all of us. You have uh, been so generous, not the amount, but just the, the posture. We were so grateful for that. But if you're not living in generosity currently, why not? And so wherever you are, would you just bow your heads? I want you to do this exercise. I want you to take your, your hands and put them in front of you and, and make a fist. Make a fist. And then ask God to speak to you as you position your body in this way. What are you holding on to in this world that would cause you to resist being generous? What are you holding on to in this world that would cause you to, to not want to follow in this action of a disciple. I know Christians who will come to every Bible study, every prayer meeting, 
will show up and worship with their mouth and their hands, but the second you start talking about money, they're walking out the door. Is that you? Why? What are you holding on to? Is it your own comfort? Do you want more things to make your life more comfortable? Is it that materialism that could smother your spiritual life if you're not careful? Is it, is it your security? Because you want the security of, of seeing a bank account at a certain level? Maybe in an unwise way? Is it the opinion of others? That you want people to think that you're doing really well and have success? And so you gotta wear the right clothes or have the right kind of house or drive the right kind of car? Is it all the things that you think you need to give your kids or your grandkids? But parents and grandparents, could you just believe that the greatest gift you could give your children and grandchildren is a heart of generosity and the thinking of God and others before themselves? And then if, if something comes to mind that the Lord's revealing in your heart that's keeping you from being generous as God's calling you to be. Would you just open your hands if you're, if you're truthfully able to do this and hand it to the Lord? Asking God to help you trust him. And asking him to help you walk forward on this journey of giving and generosity. Not kicking and screaming. Not with a ho-hum posture, an Eeyore mentality about giving, but cheerfully and joyfully because of what God has done for us in Christ. Father, we want to be a generous people because you are a generous God. What a an incredible reality that we get to be a part of this work by simply giving back what you have given to us. Who are we that we get to be a part of something like this? And yet you let us. Father, would you help us be a more faithful, obedient people because of our time before your word today? Would you help us be a more generous people? because you're a generous God. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.